Amen. <clears throat> Thank you, Pastor Tag. Good morning, church. Great to see all of you. I hope you're having a good holiday weekend thus far. Uh, parents, if you'd like your children to go to Gospel Project, so some age-specific teaching now that's offered, you can head out towards the back and they'll help you get there. Um, everybody else will be in Colossians 1, as Tad prayed and mentioned in his prayer. We are working our way through this book. A couple quick uh, scheduling kind of things to let you know about that are upcoming, just to keep you uh, aware. Um, next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, Rob Krause will be here to preach. Rob is, are you happy it's not me, Jessica? Seems like it. Um, Rob, Sandy, and uh, their kids were here last, uh, the last gathering this morning. So if you've not yet met them, uh, Rob is the pastor of Serenissima Bible Church in northern Italy, and the whole family works together to help plant churches, in, uh, particularly in that northern region in Italy, although that's really spreading out. Maybe he'll talk about some of that next week. So we'll pause Colossians for one week, and Rob's going to walk us through uh, some things the Lord's been teaching him. So I know you'll uh, enjoy that. And then uh, the following several weeks after that, four or five, week, five weeks after that, uh, we'll have some other pastors and staff members who will be preaching for us, and they'll be working right on through the rest of Colossians. Um, I have some study sabbatical time in June, and then a week and a half of a family vacation, first part of July. So we'll miss you, be praying for you, and anticipate being back with you uh, in uh, mid-July. And um, just know of our thoughts and prayers will be with you as um, I would appreciate your prayers as I try to work on uh, thinking through the, the preaching calendar the rest of the year into the first part of next year and then hopefully do some praying and seeking the Lord's guidance uh, on the next season of ministry for us together as a church. This morning, though, we'll be in uh, Colossians 1. Um, if, if you're new this morning, welcome. We are uh, doing a deep dive through uh, this New Testament book called Colossians, and we're going slow to try to really soak in the glories of all that these, uh, these paragraphs teach us about the gospel. Uh, last week, uh, we learned from verses 3 through 8 that the hope of the gospel creates a people of faith and love, and uh, I hope that you've been able to enjoy that truth in the last week as you've trusted Jesus in new ways and in deeper ways, and as you've sought to express uh, love for God's people. This, is, uh, this morning we'll be in the next paragraph, verses 9 to 14. We'll see in a minute that this uh, paragraph is a prayer. It's a, a prayer uh, of uh, request that we'll take uh, the morning together to really consider. But before we read it, would you think with me for a moment about the fact that uh, Paul first offered thanksgiving for what God was doing in this church, and then that immediately led him and compelled him to pray. I think that progression is uh, helpful and instructive to us, because anything good in our lives, church, is only ours because it's been given to us by God. Everything good in any arena of life, has been given to us by the hand of a benevolent God who has been gracious to us despite the fact that we don't deserve His graciousness. But He supplies us with everything that we need because He's good and merciful and kind and gracious. 
And so really in any arena of life, when we recognize something good has been given to us, then as we think about that and thank God for it, that immediately should move us into prayer. And in particular, when we think about the gift of our salvation, then what we'll see from this pattern in Colossians 1 is that when we recognize what what God has done in saving us, that that ought to compel us to immediately then begin asking God to finish what He started. It's that the, the grace we've experienced in being saved from our sin ought to remind us to pray that God would complete His good work that He's begun. So we might put it this way, the the grace given to us in our salvation should propel us to pray for more grace for sanctification. And that's the pattern that we see here. My guess is that that might feel counterintuitive to us, that in, uh, in thinking about what God's already done for us, we would then ask Him to do more. And yet it is our past experiences with the graciousness and goodness of God that make us so certain that He wants to do yet uh, more in our lives. Amen? With that in mind, let's look together at verses 9 through 14. Uh, Verse 9, it says, And so, from the day we heard, now the hearing that Paul's talking about is hearing that God had saved a group of people in Colossae and that they were growing in their faith and their love. So from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I think this is an incredibly uh, powerful prayer, not only because of its beauty, it it has a way of uh, causing our hearts to soar as we consider the kinds of things that God does in our lives. But it's also helpful and significant because it shows us not only what Paul prayed, but why he prayed it. And that then can instruct us in our own growth in praying. We'll only be able to scratch the surface this morning, so I'd encourage you in the coming week or two that maybe you could schedule some time as as a family or with a few other brothers and sisters in Christ and Get together and read it more carefully, and then simply take time together to pray, to to practice the very pattern that we see here. But at first glance, as you consider this prayer, uh, does it seem to you to be a bit like a six-year-old's Christmas list? It just feels like a, a splattering of requests. And yet, if you slow down and look at it really carefully, what you'll see is there's actually only one prayer request in this whole paragraph. There's only one thing being asked for, and that is in verse 9. The request here is that God would fill us with the knowledge of His will. Everything else in the paragraph flows out of that simple 
request. God, fill your people with the knowledge of your will. That request then breaks down in two ways. There is uh, the request followed by the reason for the request. And then finally, some results that would flow from God answering that prayer. Now, do you notice what I did there? The Baptist preacher came out. It happens about once a year, all right? So the paragraph really fits well as we think about the single request that's made, then the reason for that request, and then there's several results that would flow from it. So let's just consider this prayer under those headings. First, the request. Uh, Friends, it's not complicated to figure out what your baseline motivation and priority is in life. Essentially, you can look at three things. If you take some time later today to look at your recent calendar, your recent bank statement, and your recent prayer request, those three things would give a very, very clear picture of what currently is important to you. Those three things expose not so much what we say we prioritize, but what we functionally actually believe is most important in our day-to-day life. This is because where our time, money, and prayers go reveal what is most valuable and treasured in our lives. Now, I want to tread carefully here because there are a couple of topics the Scripture speaks to that a preacher just doesn't have to work at making people feel bad about. We, 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 most of us feel bad about it constantly. And one of those areas is prayer. I mean, how could you ever feel like, yeah, I've really got that one covered. I don't need to grow in that anymore. I, I certainly have never felt that way. And um, I believe probably many of you haven't either. But would you think with me about the fact that maybe we have some conviction that would be appropriate to feel, not so much principally about how much we pray, but about what we pray about when we do pray. The content of the prayers that we pray. This paragraph is really helpful in that regard. Because so often when we pray, the things we pray for aren't bad. It's not wrong, of course, to pray for uh, someone who has a tummy ache and for some of the obstacles that we face in everyday life. But when those kinds of prayer requests comprise the totality of our interaction with God, then it's no wonder prayer is rather boring. This prayer does a great job of helping us see what it would look like to sort of take prayer to the next level, to pray to a big God who has big plans and has invited us into what he's doing. Paul really shows us the way here. In fact, um, if this is a, a topic you'd like to learn more about, something you could consider doing over the summer, is there are uh, 13 letters that Paul wrote that make up uh, some of the books of our New Testament. And um, in almost all of his letters, there's a really powerful prayer early on in the letter. Something you could do is just get a 
group of people together on your own initiative and read through those prayers, study them together, and then try to put them to practice in actual prayer together. If, uh, if you feel like you need a cheat sheet, uh, there's a book called Praying with Paul that Don Carson wrote that does a great job of explaining these prayers. What you'd find if you embark on that study is that Paul was a, a man consumed with gospel priorities. And so as he thought about life, the, the lens through which he viewed what to pray for is God fill the earth and fill your people with an understanding of what you've done for them in Christ. And that just oozes out of all the prayers. The more we mature in the Lord, brothers and sisters, then the less our thoughts become consumed with ourselves, and the more we find ourselves centered on God and on God blessing others. And that changes the way that we pray. Now, let's consider the request that's here in this paragraph. Paul made one request. God, fill them with the knowledge of your will. Knowledge is a bit of a dicey topic, isn't it? I mean, um, how we know what we know and how we assess whether what we're being told is true is actually true. I think has always been a complicated issue, but never perhaps more so than today. It is a mess trying to figure out if what we're hearing is actually factual. Terms like misinformation, fake news, and alternate facts, as though that's a thing, uh, are now a part of the very fabric of our daily life. And on the one hand, we're being told that all truth is relative. You have your truth, I have mine. And yet, we're also told that if you don't in certain arenas accept my truth as your truth, then you're a dangerous moron. And that, those two things together... Um, are a deeply incoherent way to look at life. It doesn't actually work, but that's not stopping the proliferation of this way of thinking about knowledge. The, the question of how have we gotten here is a very fascinating one. I've been reading as many books as I can find on it because I want to understand the way in which my own thinking has been impacted by it and try to help us as a church Technology has certainly played a role in this. When um, anyone with an opinion can blast it to the whole world, it's not difficult to see why we'd become confused. Because uh, I've got a secret for you. You don't know everything about everything. And really, in life, if you live 80 or 90 years, how many things can you really master? That it's just not possible, even for the very brightest among us, to ascertain expertise in every area of life. This is why we need majors in college and people to 
uh, become experts in various topics so that collectively we can all learn from each other. But um, today, what is prized is everyone having an opinion about everything and asserting it as loudly as possible. And that has <laughs> all kinds of ramifications. But I don't think that technology has actually caused this problem. I think it's simply given a voice to what was already present in the human heart. You see, um, sinful humanity is quite content to wallow in ignorance and call it knowledge. Romans chapter 1 tells us that as we choose to reject God and go our own way, that one of the things God does is turn us over as a form of discipline into this very ignorance that I'm speaking of. Now, be careful in the way that you think about this, because I'm not mainly here speaking about a problem outside the church in the big, bad, scary, mean world, but something that's present even among us. We might be helped by uh, considering this, a quote from Carl Truman, as he, thinks, as he writes about how we think about this. He says, and I quote, every age has its darkness and its dangers. The task of the Christians not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. Perhaps the best way for us to live as Christians, as people of truth, in this time in which it's hard to know what truth is, is that we would be becoming people filled with the knowledge of God. Ever more humble and gracious and confident in the Lord, not because we're better than anybody else, but because we sit often in His Word learning what's true, and then seek to live humbly in the world as people who have come to know Him, inviting others to do the same. I don't think there's a way out of this apart from that. Now, you'll notice in verse 9 that the knowledge that Paul prayed for was a certain kind of knowledge. It was a knowledge of God's will. It seems that in, in our everyday vernacular, as we speak with each other about God's will, usually what we mean when we talk about God's will is that we're seeking an answer to some decision that needs to be made. And uh, that would be things like, should I, should I marry her or not? Should I take this job or wait for one that pays more? Should I buy this apartment or rent this condo? Should I decide to have this surgery or is it too risky? Should I buy this car or keep riding a bike and save money? We, 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 we think about God's will in the sense of making some of the major decisions that we make in life, especially because we're a church that leans young. Many of us, our conversations with each other and the prayers that we pray with one another are often about those decisions. And yet, do you realize that over the span of a lifetime, there's really only maybe four, five, six major, major decisions that you ever make. 
Your life is much more an uh, amassing of little tiny decisions. And often those little tiny everyday decisions end up determining much more of the person you become than those couple of major, major decisions. Now, it's, it's of course good and right and godly to seek the Lord's will and wisdom in major decisions. And there may, in fact, be times that God tells you what to do. And yet many times, the Lord lights only the next step that we should take because He's wanting to draw us closer and closer in relationship with Him. Believers ought to want to make decisions consistent with God's will. But so often, when the Bible speaks of God's will, it's not talking principally about seeking a a private, secret, personal knowledge of what God would have for us personally in the future. Instead, it's speaking about God's will in the sense of God's revealed will, what God has said um, in the Scriptures about His plan for humanity in Christ. Being filled with the knowledge of God's will in that sense is not being certain about uh, whether God wants you to go to Five Guys or Chipotle for lunch, but rather that you would be ever more aware of and filled with the knowledge of who God is, of what God has done for you in Christ, and how we fit into the big plan that God has rather than God fitting into the big plan that we have. That we would come to see ever more clearly that in the great play that we're a part of, God is the central character, and we are the stagehands, not the other way around. So much of the time the Bible speaks of God's will, this is the kind of thing that it's talking about. I think that's certainly true here. Being filled with an understanding of who God is and what God has done will, of course, have a great impact on the way in which and the decisions that we make that are both big and small. But it's getting that, that, that revealed knowledge of God's will first that then impacts the, the little things that we decide. This is being filled with and immersed in the plan that God revealed in the Bible. Friends, the only way to stability, the only shelter from things like quote-unquote fake news, the, the only authoritative source by which we can be untethered from our own subjective feelings as the final arbiter of truth is to go to the Bible. Because God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The more we're filled with the knowledge of God's will, the more concrete and practical our experience of Christianity will become. So take up your Bible, read, pray as you do so, asking that God would fill you with the knowledge of what He has said in His Word, that you might know Him more. So that's the request that Paul made. And he was confident that God would do it because of what God had already done for them, 
And when we pray for that, for each other, we can be confident that is a prayer God delights to say yes in. He wants to be known more deeply, loved more intently, and experienced more fully. This is a prayer you can say with confidence, knowing that God says yes. Now, what results or what reason would drive that prayer? Why did Paul pray it, in other words? Well, that's the very next clause in the paragraph. Paul prayed this prayer so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The, the reason for praying that we would grow in knowledge is that we would live lives more pleasing to our King. In a church like ours, in which we try very intentionally to maintain a solid understanding of biblical doctrine, this is a necessary gut check. Because in a church like ours, it can be easy to slip into a knowledge for knowledge's sake, a, an amassing of more and more and more content that's not actually affecting Monday through Saturday. And that isn't the kind of knowledge that's really knowledge that's useful. You see, when Paul prayed for a knowledge of God's will, he wasn't praying for knowledge for knowledge's sake. He wasn't praying that we would become puffed up with more and more facts because that produces Pharisees, but rather that we would be more and more sure of the gospel so that our lives would look more and more Christ-like. Knowledge of God's will must not become an end in itself. Rather, knowledge must be the means through which we would behave more consistently with who we are in Christ. Does the difference make sense to you? To know God and His will more fully then is to become more equipped to live a life devoted to Him. When the gospel then is at the forefront of our minds, when we're increasingly aware of what we've been saved from and saved for, then we're more and more ready to understand throughout the course of the day, what would God have me do in this situation and in this situation and in this situation? Because we're more full of the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God's revealed will leads to ways more increasingly pleasing to God. Friend, any kind of knowledge, especially spiritual knowledge, that doesn't result in that is to be avoided because it's dangerous. Now, when we hit a topic like pleasing God, I, I realize that in some ways there's some concern we might have, that perhaps we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. What I mean by that is, in the last 10, 15, 20 years, particularly in, the, in many American evangelical churches, there has been a great recovery of the way in which the gospel impacts everything. And there's many tremendous, wonderful fruit 
or fruits that have come from that. But I fear that in certain circles, Christians now seem to think that because we're not saved by what we do, then God doesn't care what we do. But our Lord is never indifferent to our behavior as Christians. And in fact, the scriptures tell us, yes, 100%, you are not saved by your behavior. But then 100%, you want to seek to live as a Christian who's been saved from your sinfulness by behaving in a way that brings delight to God. You see, it's possible the scriptures tell us to by what we do, either grieve God or please God. Considering who He is and what He's done for us, I pray this morning that we would be motivated afresh and anew to recognize the importance of obedience, the importance of seeking not to garner more favor from God through obedience, but simply to bring a smile to His face because we live in ways consistent with who he is and what he's done for us. When we have a right knowledge of God and his plan, what does that actually look like in everyday life? How does that change the way we live? Well, the rest of the paragraph tells us that that's its purpose. We've seen the request, God, fill him with the knowledge of your will. And the, the reason for that request, that they would live in ways consistent with who they are in order that God would be pleased. And then the paragraph ends, verses 10, 11, and 12, and then spilling out a little bit further, by giving us a picture of Christians' lives that are being lived in ways that are pleasing to God. The reason spills into the results. There's four of them listed. Now, for a lot of us, it's been a long time since we were in English class, but you, you might notice as you look at those verses, 10, 11, and 12, that there are several words that end in ing. Those are participles, and those participles all point back to what a life lived in the knowledge of God looks like, what a person who's living in a way pleasing to God, does. The result of growth in spiritual knowledge will be a people who are fruitful, who are knowledgeable, who are powerful, and who are grateful. Christians, when we put our knowledge of the gospel to work in the stuff of everyday life, it'll change how we live. It'll mean our priorities look different. Our calendar, our uh, bank statement, and our prayer requests. We'll become more fruitful. We'll become more knowledgeable. We'll become more powerful, and we'll become more grateful. Let's spend just a moment on each of those four things. If you're reading in your text, you can follow along. The first one that Paul speaks of is that we would be people bearing fruit in every good work. Now, obviously, Paul doesn't mean stretch out your arms, and if you're growing in the Lord, then there's going to be apples and pears 
Obviously, he's using this metaphorically. What he's saying is that, as he he spoke of in Ephesians chapter 2, Christians are not saved by what you do, but you are saved for what you will do. You see, it's God's plan that His great gospel would spread all over the world and spread within us, and He would have a people for Himself, principally through more and more people coming to know God and then living their lives for God, seeking to do good in His name, for His glory, for the benefit of other people. Those are good works. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for them. Bearing fruit in every good work simply means that as we live everyday life, we would be seeking ways in each moment of every day to live consistent with who we are in Christ, which means that we would speak of who God is, that we would think often of what He's done for us, and that we would be motivated by the Spirit within us to look for ways we can bless and serve and help and contribute to the work of God in saving more people and in developing those who have already come to know Him. Friend, did you know that if you're in Christ, then God has uniquely gifted, equipped, um, empowered you in ways consistent with your personality and the experiences you've had to be a blessing in people's lives in such a way that only you can do certain things. Because you are like a snowflake. You are unique, different from every single other person. And God in His private secret will, that which He sovereignly brings about, that some of which we come to see and some of which we don't know. But what we do know about that will is that it involves your sanctification, Christian, and your contribution to the work of God in some ways that are public and other people know it, and then in some ways that are private and other people won't ever know. The things you pray on behalf of others and the ways you get involved to seek to help people grow up in Christ. There is a part for each of us to play in which no one is more significant than the other and in which your contributions are part of how you experience God and grow up in Him. That's why the second thing on this list is that we would be, in verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. At first, that might seem confusing because he Paul prayed, God, help them to be filled with your a knowledge of your will. And then if they are, then they'll be able to live in ways pleasing to you. And that they'd bear fruit and that they would grow in your knowledge. Well, didn't you already pray for knowledge? But what Paul means, I think, is something we experience, that we already know. That when what we know about God changes how we live, and we roll up our sleeves and help people to mature in the Lord, and witness to people who don't know Him, then the very act of making a contribution and serving then brings about an experiential knowledge that's deeper than what we had in the beginning. 
Have you found that to be true? That in your serving, you learn more experientially about God and who you are in Him. That's what Paul's talking about here. Now, this knowledge then, I think, is not circular, meaning I hear something and then in ministry by serving, I hear the same thing again and know it experientially. I think he's saying more than that. I think he's saying it's like a funnel in that I hear something about God and by His grace, it gets fleshed out in ministry, in bearing fruit. And that knowledge pulls us further and deeper into our love and experience of a God who is comprehensive and all-consuming. In other words, we know God and experience God more as we contribute to His work of blessing and serving and helping others come to know God more. The the third result that Paul spoke of here is in verse 11. He referenced that we would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul prayed that we would be strengthened with all power. Church, you don't need me to tell you that life in a fallen world is often difficult. We have, in unusual ways over the last year and a half, experienced difficulties many of us never conceived of or certainly ever thought we would face. And um, our lives have been put in a blender and turned on high. And as they are slowly returning to more normalcy, I hope that we retain a sense of just how weak we are in ourselves and how much life can be upended, and how much every day we need to be having fresh experiences of being strengthened with God's power. According to His might. Because this life, until Christ returns, is not going to be easy. Each of us face our own temptations and have our own difficulties. And what we need is endurance and patience and joy. And those come from fresh experiences of being strengthened with the power of God, which come from a daily deepening of our knowledge of who God is, of what He's done for us in Christ, of how the Holy Spirit's working in our lives, of how he's left us not alone, but with each other to help each other grow up in the Lord. And the more that happens, the more we will be, the fourth thing, grateful. That we will give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Friend, if you find yourself growing in your knowledge of God and his will, then you'll find yourself increasingly living in such a way that the Lord is pleased, not grieved. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like those four things. I don't think that's a comprehensive list, but it does give us a great sample of what the customary growth of a church and growth of an individual Christian is. 
it's that we would find ourselves more and more fruitful, more and more knowledgeable, more and more grateful, and more able to endure the difficulties in life because we're living from God's strength, not our own. Now, it might be this morning that you are not uh, yet a Christian, that you're still considering the claims of Christ. Much of what I've said might feel very foreign or alien to you outside of your present experience. And so I want to tell you in particular what's offered in this paragraph by way of application to you. Friend, this paragraph says that God has a power to deliver you from darkness and bring you into light. That the way to be put back together, the way to wholeness, the way out of a spiritual darkness and into the light of life is not through you changing your behavior through self-discipline, but rather through you giving up and coming to trust that God and God alone can change your situation. And the way that happens is coming to believe that Jesus left heaven, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a death on your behalf, rose again in victory, ascended to heaven where he now rules and reigns. That's what we Christians call the gospel. That in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is the great news of God's ability to rescue people out of their fallenness and to place them into a new family. We'd love to tell you more about this gospel because this gospel, as the paragraph ends by saying, offers the forgiveness of sins. If you believe this gospel, you can turn from sin and trust in Christ today. And if you're not quite ready to do that, we'd love to tell you more. Why don't you stick around on the patio afterwards and simply ask somebody, tell me more about Jesus. They'd be delighted to. Let's pray. God, we pray as a result of what we've heard today that we would be filled in new ways with a knowledge of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. We pray that our knowledge, God, you would protect us from the kind of knowledge that puffs up, that makes us arrogant and pharisaical, and instead that our time together today would not make us more and more full of ourselves, but more and more in awe of your grace. We pray that, Father, if we've not put much effort lately into living in ways that are pleasing to you, that what we've heard today about who you are and what you've done would motivate us, God, in a sense of awe of what we've been given in you. That in fresh new ways, there would be moments this week where we make decisions we wouldn't have made, where we stop and notice people we wouldn't have, where we send texts of encouragement and scripture and spend time and money in ways that are pleasing to you. 
not to drum up new favor from you, but simply because of how good you are to us. We ask this by faith in Jesus' name. Amen.